two roads diverged in the middle of the wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So says Robert Frost in his famous poem, The Road Not Taken. Have you ever been in the middle of the wood, uh, in the midst of your life, and, and you step back and you ask yourself that question, what, what am I doing? What is my life about? What am I living for? I was recently interviewing a, a young Christian artist, and, and I asked her if there was a, a moment in her Christian life that, that was pivotal. And, and she said it was in her early 20s when her cousin asked her a question. And the question was this, do you have a purpose? She said up until that point, she had just been doing whatever she was good at. Uh, the next thing she was good at. It was sports, or it was art, or it was school. But, but her cousin asked, what's your purpose? W what are you living for? For me, it was my sophomore year in college. I, I went on a road trip with a group of friends. We went to see the Grand Canyon. I'd never seen the Grand Canyon before. And there was something about the immensity of that landscape that gave me perspective. It, it, it put me in my place. Later that night, or perhaps the next day, we found ourselves in a, in a movie theater outside of Phoenix, and, and we watched this movie that none of us had seen before, it had just come out. I'm going to date myself here. It was called Dead Poets Society, uh, 1989. And I remember sitting there in that theater and, and hearing Robin Williams, Mr. Keating, say, carpe diem, seize the day, make your lives extraordinary. And I remember thinking to myself, what, what am I living for? What is my life about? What is life about? Of course, in our modern world, uh, in what some might call our secular age or even post-secular age, there are various options for meaning. Uh, uh, the first option is to find meaning in pleasure, uh, to really make our desires our God, to live for desire fulfillment, for pleasure. The, the motto of this option is something like, if it feels good, do it. To, to just do the next pleasurable thing. There's something pleasurable, pleasurable about uh, having our desires fulfilled, just doing what we want to do. St. Paul says in, in Philippians 3 that their God is their belly or their stomach. Uh, their God is just whatever they want to eat, whatever they want to consume, whatever their appetites are. A second option for meaning in our culture today is to find meaning not in pleasure, but in success. Really approval. Success is a kind of approval, getting the approval of others for what we're doing. The motto here might be something like, if it looks good, achieve it, succeed at it, whether it's business or school or sports or getting enough likes or more likes than others on our posts. It, it, it's to do something that looks good and to achieve that. This is to make success our God, to live for success and, and our reputation, our fame, really our own glory. The third option for meaning in our culture is, is to find meaning in a good cause. Uh, the motto here might be, if it's a good cause, join it. 
We look for something good in the world, something we can give our lives to, whether it's an environmental concern or, or racial justice. We look for some good cause in the world and we join it. It's to make doing good things for humanity our God. It's, it's, it's to live for the next good cause. There's a fourth option of meaning in our culture, and perhaps it's, it's the most honest while at the same time being the most empty. Uh, it's to find meaning by really escaping from meaning. Um, it often comes at the disappointing end of trying to find meaning in, in pleasure or, or success or even a good cause, and, and we give in to apathy and cynicism. Uh, it's to find meaning by giving up on the search for meaning, giving into the vanity or the futility of it all. The motto here might be, whatever. It's to kind of look at all the other options for meaning, pleasure, success, a good cause, and say, whatever. There was a recent New York Times article by Kyle Chaka, And he calls this a culture of negation. And here I'm going to quote from him. He says, these moments of tumult also inspire retreat. Climate change, technological upheaval, racism, inequality, the churn of history which shows no signs of stopping. These all make it easy to instead slip into the welcoming void of the content stream. Numbness beckons when life is difficult, when problems seem insurmountable, when there is so much to mourn. Many opt to simply stay home, pursuing as uncomplicated and swaddled a life as possible, surrounded by things that feel, if not good, then at least neutral. We create an acceptable layer between our internal and external environments, a barrier that's still under our control, even as the outside world grows increasingly chaotic. The culture of negation inspires a taste for nothingness and glorifies numbness. No one seems to want anything. There's no enthusiasm for desire in this culture, only the wish that we could give it up. Uh, this is an approach to life that's, that's not doing whatever we desire to. It's, it's more about lulling our desires to sleep and to give in to distraction and other activities that numb us. Uh, this is to make our God the, the, the refusal of a need for a God, the refusal of a need for purpose. Of course, as Christians, we have our own answer to the question of what is the purpose of life. We, we often say that the Christian's ultimate purpose is to give glory to God, to, to glorify God with our lives. For instance, Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism that some of you may be familiar with, a, 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 a very uh, influential uh, confession of faith in, in the Protestant church. Uh, its first question is, what is the chief end or purpose of humans? And the answer is, the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I teach at Biola University, and our motto is, above all, give glory to God. It's hard to argue with someone who says, the real purpose of my life is to glorify God in everything I do. 
Sounds great. But I'm a little concerned that as we try to compete with the prevailing ideas of meaning and purpose in our culture today, pleasure, success, uh, doing good works, and even numbness, that if we don't have a, 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 a clear understanding, a practical understanding, a lived understanding of what it means to glorify God with our lives, to, to give him glory, that that answer to the question won't compete very well. Uh, to give glory to God sounds like something you do at a, a Christian rock concert. It's, it's not something that gets you out of bed in the morning. And so I want to focus today on, on what would it mean to glorify God with our lives. Now, Scripture doesn't always give us uh, clear definitions to the questions we have, but we get pretty close here. We're going to be looking particularly at John 15, verse 8 this morning that was just read to us. And Jesus puts it pretty straightforwardly. He says in verse 8, by this my father is glorified. Here's how my father is glorified. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples or show that you are my students, my learners. In the last few weeks, Daniel has been teaching through John 15. And, and if you haven't uh, caught all of those sermons, I encourage you to go back to the, to the stream and, and watch those. Uh, Daniel's done a great job, an excellent job at leading us through John 15. He's, he's emphasized three promises that we find in John 15. The promise of Christ's presence, that, that Jesus is the vine and, and we, are, we are called to remain or, or dwell with him. And his father is the vine dresser who's, who's pruning our lives as we abide with Jesus. The promise of, of Christ's love, uh, Daniel made clear uh, last week that, that the same love, Jesus says, that the Father has for him is, is the love that he has for us. The way that the Father loves Jesus, the, the self-sacrificial, life-giving love of the Father for the Son is the same love that Jesus has for us. And then the promise of God's glory or Christ's glory. And it's that last promise that we want to spend time with today. What, what does it look like to glorify God by bearing fruit? So I want to unpack this in two ways. I want to talk about God's glory. What does it mean to glorify God? And then I want to connect that to Jesus's teaching about bearing fruit. So first we'll start with the idea of giving God glory. Uh, the Greek word for glory is doxa, and it can be translated either glory or honor. So the idea is something like we, we glorify or we honor God with our lives by bearing fruit. Um, but, but, but what is that exactly? How do we do that? Um, something or someone is glorious when, when we notice the goodness that is on display. We, we say that the, the sunset was glorious or, or that was a glorious rendition of a particular song. And what we're noticing is, is the goodness, the beauty that was on display in that sunset. 
in that song. You know, we talk about seeing someone in all their glory, right? I saw him in all his glory. Well, it's a visible manifestation of that thing or person. And so God's glory has been defined as the self-manifestation, the visible self-manifestation of who God is. God's glory is, is the visible manifestation of his being, of his goodness, of his power, of his intelligence, of his beauty, of his grace, of his love. And this is why we can see uh, in Isaiah, for instance, Isaiah says the whole earth is filled with God's glory. Or the psalmist in Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. You see, when the created world is, is functioning as God intended, it, it reflects back to God who he is, his power, his intelligence, his goodness, his beauty. And this is why Jesus uh, is the glory of God. Uh, Hebrews uh, verse um, three says, or excuse me, uh, chapter one, verse three says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, uh, the exact imprint of his nature. Scripture oftentimes uses light or, or God's brilliance and, and some sort of light as a metaphor for God's glory, the Shekinah glory. And light is really a nice metaphor, just as, just as light can be refracted through a prism and show all of the color spectrum. So God's being can be refracted through his created world or refracted through Jesus. And we actually see all of who God is through the person of Jesus. Because in Jesus, Paul says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. John 1 says that, that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. See, God's glory, God's nature was, was visible through the person of Jesus. But we too, as humans, we're, we're made in God's image. Uh, we, we have God's nature in a limited way built into our natures. We were made to reflect back to him his glory. So one way to think about glorifying God is, is that when we live life as God intended, we glorify him. We, we reflect back to God. We, ref, we refract God's nature in our own lives. And so our lives look more and more as God intended. In fact, in 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, Christ's image, from one degree of glory to another. From, from one degree of glory to another. So, so we glorify God more and more as our lives, everything we do is done more and more as God intended. So to give glory to God is not so much about praising God or, or shouting, uh, you know, exultations of who God is, but it's living our lives as God intended. This is why Irenaeus of Leones, a, a, a second century early Christian bishop, is famously quoted in this way. He says, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. The glory of God is the human person 
fully alive. So this helps us, I think, understand what Jesus means by fruit, that, that his father is glorified, that, that, that his father is glorified by our lives when we bear much fruit, when we reflect back to God increasingly who he made us to be. So let's look in the context here of John 15 at this idea of bearing fruit. And I think there's at least four things to say about fruit. The first one is this. In, in the context of John 15, it's quite clear that the fruit that glorifies God is produced through abiding in the vine, through remaining with Jesus, dwelling with him. Uh, Jesus makes clear in, in John 15 that, that this fruit is, is only produced through dependence upon an interactive relationship with the nourishing, energizing presence of Jesus. This ongoing union and communion with Christ by his spirit. There are certainly ways to produce good things in our life, but Jesus says if it's not coming out of an abiding relationship with him, he says it's nothing. I really appreciated how Daniel put this point last week. Here's Daniel, I'm quoting from him. He says, the fruit that is produced happens because of the life that is given by the vine. Fruit is not something that we're trying to manufacture within our own selves out of our own strength. No, the fruit that takes place is by virtue of finding one's complete and utter life, their source of meaning from the vine, from Jesus Christ himself. Marianne May Thompson, another commentator on uh, John's gospel, says this, Strikingly, Jesus does not exhort his disciples to bear fruit. Rather, he exhorts his disciples to remain attached to him, the source of life. So to glorify God with our lives is to reflect back to him who he made us to be. And that begins with abiding in Jesus. God designed us to remain in him through Jesus by the Spirit. We might say, by this, Jesus' Father is glorified. That out of abiding in a nourishing relationship with Jesus, we bear fruit and so prove to be Jesus' followers. But second, the, the, the fruit that glorifies God not only is produced by abiding in, the, abiding in the vine, but it proceeds from a Christ-formed inner life. Jesus is always clear, he's very clear in his teaching, that, that the, the good tree, as he says in Matthew 7, bears good fruit. The healthy inner life produces healthy or good fruit. Or he says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, uh, don't clean the outside of the cup, cup, but clean the inside of the cup. Jesus is very clear that, that the life that he intends his followers to live is an inside-out life. We're transformed from the inside out. And so this is a revolution of our inner life, our desires, our attitudes, our emotional responses, our, our thoughts. As our inner life is transformed, we bear much fruit. Uh, we see here that abiding with Jesus is, is to enter into his love, his joy, his peace. Um, earlier in, in, in John 14, verse 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is that kind of peace of a, a peaceful repose 
And so Jesus is saying he wants to give us his peace. Uh, then in, in John uh, 15, uh, verse 11, he says, I've said these words to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be made full, peace and joy. And then again, uh, he talks about how the same love that the Father has for him, Jesus has for us. And then in verse 12 of chapter 15, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that the Son has for us, which is the same love we're meant to have for one another. This love, this joy, this peace is this inner life transformation. And, and I don't think it's a stretch to connect this to Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. The, the first three fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, and peace. And in, in, John, in the context of John 15, we see that, that Jesus gives his peace. He gives his joy. He gives his love. And then Galatians goes on to say, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The, the fruit that, that Jesus is talking about here is not only fruit that comes through abiding in him, but it's fruit that comes out of a transformed inner life as we are conformed more and more to the image of Jesus from the inside out. Third, uh, the fruit that glorifies God is not, is not just produced from abiding in the vine. It's not just emerges from our inner life, but, but it's really every loving word and deed that proceeds from a Christ-formed inner life that is abiding in the vine. Now, there's been lots of debate over what the fruit is. I, I grew up under the interpretation that the fruit in John 15 are converts, that what it means to bear fruit is to get people saved, that as you abide in Jesus, you will be a witness and your witness will bear fruit, namely converts. And while I think converts are in here, it looks like Jesus is talking about something much more than just converts. And here I'm going to quote from a commentator by the name of D.A. Carson. Carson uh, is a theologian at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he says this, there has been considerable, considerable dispute over the nature of the fruit that is envisaged the fruit, we are told, is obedience or new converts or love or Christian character. He says these interpretations are reductionistic. The fruit in the vine imagery represents everything that is the product of effective prayer in Jesus' name, including obedience to his commands, experience of Jesus' joy as earlier his peace, love for one another, and witness to the world. This fruit is nothing less than the outcome of persevering dependence on the vine, driven by faith, embracing all of the believer's life and the product of his witness. So Carson says, really, the fruit is, is anything that manifests itself, that is good and loving, out of a life of abiding with Jesus. I'm going to also quote from Mike Wilkins, who's a colleague of mine at, at Talbot School of Theology. Uh, Mike puts it this way. He says, what is the kind of fruit that will be produced? First, the fruit of the Spirit, those characteristics of the Spirit, which as a whole will be evidenced in true believers. Second, new converts produced by God through the disciple. And third, righteousness and good works, which are produced by God through the person who has received new life in Christ. 
So the fruit really is, is any good that emerges in our lives uh, for others as we abide in Jesus, as we're transformed from the inside out. But there's one more thing the text tells us here in John 15 about glorifying God. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove or show that you're my disciples. It seems the fourth part of fruit bearing is that fruit that glorifies God proves or shows that we are disciples, that we are followers, that we are students. It shows both to ourselves and to others that we are learning from Jesus as his students, his disciples, how to live our lives with him in his father's kingdom. Uh, it's, It's a manifestation of the reality, the truth of life with Jesus. And so part of what glorifies God is our witness. It's the witness of our lives both to ourselves and to those around us. It's to see fruit emerge, it's to see change happen, and to be encouraged because we see that the Jesus way is real, that it actually works. Uh, John 13, 35, Jesus puts it this way. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you are my students. How will they know it? They'll know it by your love for one another. They won't be able to figure it out. How do these people love one another? Or in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. And so this fruit is meant to be evidence. It's meant to be a testimony, both to ourselves and to those around us, of the reality of Jesus in our lives. Now, now we have to be careful here. We have to be careful not to, not to beat ourselves up and say, well, I, I don't see much fruit in my life. Um, comparison is really not the right thing to do here. But if we are going to compare, what we should compare ourselves to is who we would be without Jesus. See, if you want to kind of identify how much fruit there is in your life, you might want to imagine what you would be like if you had never come to Jesus. Uh, However much of a a wreck I am right now, I would be 10 times, uh, 100 times more of a wreck without Jesus. I guarantee you. And so as I think about how I, Steve Porter, would be without Jesus, I can actually say, well, Lord, I think you've actually done quite a bit. And so we want to look at our lives and see the fruit as really anything good that has emerged through abiding in Jesus and being transformed from the inside out. But we also want to be careful not to overestimate our fruit. We don't want to condemn ourselves, but we also don't want to uh, deceive ourselves and convince ourselves we're more fruitful than we actually are. Uh, We have a long way to go. Jesus says, uh, as your heavenly father is perfect, so be perfect in all you do. Well, um, uh, we can all say that we're a long ways away from that. And so here again, it looks like Jesus is saying that part of how God is glorified in our lives is through the fruit that comes through abiding in him that then shows or proves to ourselves, to one another, to those outside of the church, that Christ is in us and we are in him. And God is glorified when we reflect back to him, to ourselves and to one another, who he made us 
to be. We might say this, by, by this, Jesus' Father, God, is glorified. That out of abiding in a nourishing relationship with Jesus, we're inwardly, inwardly conformed to his image. His, his love, his joy, his peace begin to emerge more and more in our lives. And then we move out in love for the good of those around us. Thereby showing that we are learning from Jesus how to live life with him by his spirit in his father's kingdom. That's what it means to, to glorify God, Jesus says. It's, it's to bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciple. So do you have a purpose when it comes to having a meaning, a purpose, our, our culture holds out to us very, various options. We could live for pleasure. We can live for fulfilling our desires, doing what we want to do. And we could live for success. We could find something we're good at and, and achieve it. Uh, we, could, we could live for good works. We can try to find a good cause in the world and give ourselves to that and, and try to bring political good or social good. Or we can check out, we can kind of give up on it all and find meaning somehow in really not having meaning. But Jesus provides an alternative vision. He, he says, Here, here's a way to live. It's, it's to glorify God above all else. It's to give God the glory. And that's not something we do at a Christian rock concert. That's something we do each and every moment of our lives. It's, it's bearing much fruit. It's, it's abiding in Jesus and allowing our relationship with him to conform us to his image and then see what happens. Move out in love to those around you and see what God might do through you. Um, this is a good life. Recently, I was uh, meeting with some of you. Um, it was outside. It was socially distanced. Uh, we were wearing masks even. And we were talking about how our spiritual lives were going in pandemic time during COVID-19. And, and one of you said something that has struck with me. You said this. You said, quite frankly, I miss going to church that was a spiritual rudder for me. I need my rudder back. And that image of a, of a rudder on a boat has, has stuck with me. It, I think it's a very helpful image that, that the rudder is, is meant to stabilize the boat. It, it's meant to keep the boat headed in the right direction, to keep it on course. A, a boat without a rudder is, is adrift. It's tossed to and fro by the currents, by the, by the storms, by the winds. If we're going to glorify God with our lives by abiding in Jesus, we need to have our rudders in place. We need to find those, those ways in our life, those structures, those rhythms, those practices that keep us abiding, that, that keep us attached to Jesus throughout our day, throughout our week, throughout our month, throughout our year. And in this time where we don't meet together like we normally did, we need to be paying attention to our rudders. 
we need to find other rudders in our life, other, other structures and rhythms and practices that keep us abiding in Jesus. To allow him to transform us from the inside out so that we bear much fruit. So that out of our lives come acts and deeds and words of love for the good of those around us and that becomes a witness a testimony of what life with Jesus is like by this the world will know Jesus says that you are my disciples by your love your love for one another your love for those around you let me pray so Jesus we thank you this morning that you are the true vine and that we are the branches. And that really, in one sense, the Christian life is quite simple. It's not about trying to bear fruit. It's not about trying to be good. It's not even about trying to obey your commands. It's about abiding in the love, in the life that you've already made available. We thank you, Lord, that you've invited us into that life. And Lord, help us to find a way, particularly in these times to keep ourselves abiding in you help us to find the the structures and and the rhythms and and the practices together and on our own in our daily lives to stay with you lord and to allow your life to transform us and to begin to see the fruit of your work in and through us we ask you for that, Lord, and we, we trust that you will bring it to pass because you, you love us and the love uh, that the Father has for you, Jesus, is the same love you have for us. And so you want these good things for us and help us to, uh, to, to dive into them, to notice them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.